story goes that a cat died and ended up in heaven. St. Peter greeted the cat and said, You've been a very good cat, a true friend to your owner. How can I make your stay here more pleasurable? And the cat replied to St. Peter, I belonged to a very poor family and had to sleep on a hard floor every night. I would love to have a soft bed. St. Peter smiled and gave the cat a large fluffy pillow. And after a few days then, a family of mice arrived in heaven. St. Peter greeted them and asked whether there was anything he could do to make their stay more pleasurable, more comfortable. And one of the mice said, we lived on a farm and it was a hard life. We were always on the run from the farmer and his dog. Our feet are very tired. Could you give us some roller skates so we wouldn't have to walk everywhere? And St. Peter smiled and presented the family of mice with several little pairs of skates. Well, a few more days went by, and St. Peter came back to check on the cat. How are you doing? And the cat said, everything is wonderful. I love my new soft bed, and those meals on wheels you've been sending by are just terrific. That which is a blessing for some may be a curse for others. That's important to remember as we begin today's scripture passage. We've been following the family of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah and Rachel. God has renamed Jacob Israel. And Israel's ten older sons, Sel, have sold their spoiled younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. We learned last week that what the brothers intended for evil, God was able to redirect to good. And Joseph, this formerly spoiled younger brother, rose from slavery to become the second in command to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Through various dealings because of the famine that was happening there, Joseph was able to devote to Pharaoh almost all of the livestock in the country and almost all of the land. But he's sort of like George Clinton. Anyone know who George Clinton is? He's one of the founding fathers of the United States. He was vice president to both Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. But all these years have passed and we've forgotten about the second in command. And so we're told, beginning with verse 8 in chapter 1 of Exodus, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Though Joseph had helped establish this dynasty, it was too far in the past to remember And now the Egyptians perceive that Joseph's people are becoming a threat. The Israelites are getting more numerous. They're getting stronger. That which is a blessing for some is a curse for others. We can think about some of our own national conflicts. What do we do when we're threatened as a country? What did we do when Native Americans attacked our European ancestors? We fought back and shoved them onto reservations. 
What did we do as a nation after the attack on Pearl Harbor? We fought back and eventually bombed the tar out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What did we do after, as a nation after the 9-11 terrorist attacks? We fought back, shock and awe. Despite the influence of Quakers, Amish, and peace-loving Church of the Brethren, and a few Baptists and others, the mighty United States is a competitive country, and we don't take kindly to threats. Like Pharaoh did, we want to maintain our superpower status. And so likewise, when Pharaoh was threatened, he fought back. The dangerous combination of fear and power led him to oppress this ethnic group who kept growing in number under his thumb. In the first round of the fight, he orders the Hebrew midwives to kill the infant boys they were to deliver. We call this strategy genocide. From the perspective of the oppressor, it's a good long-term strategy. Get rid of the little boys who would grow up to become soldiers and fathers. But the midwives fought back too, just much more quietly. In an act of civil disobedience, they tell Pharaoh that the Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before they can arrive. And the midwives were fearful too. It's important to recognize that, but they feared God more than they feared the king. Well, in the second round, Pharaoh comes back to his opponent with a new strategy. He decrees that everybody is to throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile so they'll drown. It's similar to the first strategy, but he's taken it public, beyond the midwives. And now, those who are attentive can see that he's scared. Well, after this second round is introduced, we meet a mother who also refuses to let a powerful king determine what she's going to do with her child. In another act of civil disobedience, she hides the baby for the first three months until he gets too rambunctious, and then she builds an ark. And interestingly, the Hebrew word here is the same word for Noah's ship back in Genesis 9. As Noah's ark was a means for salvation of a people, so is this one. It holds a baby boy who was born into oppression, but his mother cared enough for him to risk the Nile for, for his freedom. Now think about what you know about water in the Bible. Water typically represents chaos. In the very beginning of Genesis, the spirit was roaming over the water, the waters, but God then brought order out of that chaos. A few chapters later, Noah is in his ark, not my Noah, but the real, the first one, was in his ark and sailing on the waters of chaos for months until they find a place to land, a place to be stable. They find order out of chaos. 
Centuries later, another Savior would trample the watery chaos on his way from the shore to a boat where his disciples were storm-tossed and scared half to death. And with the power of God, he calms the storm. He brings order out of chaos. And so today in this passage, we see the little boys, the baby boys, big sister Miriam, watching him from the riverbank. When Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river to bathe. Coincidence? Ordering her maid to retrieve the basket, she's moved to pity when she sees a three-month-old baby crying. And like a potential pet owner walking into the SPCA, she adopts the baby on the spot. In another playful twist in the narrative, when, with Miriam's offer of help, the baby's mother gets paid for nursing her own child. Certainly, the early Hebrews smiled. And when the boy is older, Pharaoh's daughter takes him as her son and names him Moses. As an ark leads to life and salvation, once again, Pharaoh does not realize that he has lost round two. But we do. Again, in this story, God is not named, but God is at work. Terence Fretheim comments that God works in and through human beings to preserve Moses alive. And that human activity is genuine. It is not some facade to hide an all-controlling divine activity. These human beings could have failed, and God would have had to to find a different way into the future with the possibilities then available. The non-mention of God, he says, must be given its full weight. The comfort that I take from this work of God behind the scenes is that when I fail, God does not fail. One pouring night, a man ducked into a taxi that happened to come along just as he walked out of his office And the cabbie said, perfect timing. You're like Harold. Who? The man asked. Harold Curry, the driver said. A most memorable character. He did everything right. Like this cab coming along right when you needed it. That's exactly what would have happened to Harold. He was always right. And the man responded, nobody's that perfect. The cab driver went on. He was a great athlete. He played tennis and golf like a pro, was a superb dancer. Harold never forgot birthdays or anniversaries. He knew which fork to take to use and how to taste wine. He was also a great handyman. He could fix anything. Me, I'm all thumbs. Well, they reached the passenger's destination as, as he stepped out. He said, the passenger said, that Harold was quite a guy. No wonder he's your most memorable character. And as the driver made change, he said, he'd be yours too if you married his widow. <laughs> Having created us, God is aware of our imperfections. And that's where grace comes in. 
The earth will continue to spin when I fail to see that which God thinks would be best. The church does not depend on the perfection of me or any one person. Despite us, God is at work all the same. And if we allow God to work through us, God will do so. If we don't, God will find another way. We've been seeing these promises kept through story after story. God finds a way. As the book of Exodus progresses, we see God and Pharaoh in constant battle. And sometimes it even looks like Pharaoh is winning. Margaret Thatcher once said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it. And the soldiers in this story, the fighters, are the ones who are not in a place of power. These are the troops at work. Moses' mother refusing to follow what the king said and hiding her baby and then setting him free for God to use. The midwives fighting in their quiet way. Miriam, the older sister, keeping track of her baby brother and risking the approach to Pharaoh's daughter with her offer of a nurse. And even Pharaoh's daughter may have gone against her father's wishes when she brought the Hebrew boy into the household. These women made themselves available to God and with the small amount of power they had laid the groundwork for salvation. And in the end... God wins. Now, I don't mean to imply that it's just women who can lay the groundwork of salvation. That's this story. We need to look, of course, over the broad story of the Bible and of human history, of Christian history, and of even our own histories to think about what God has done to lay the groundwork for us. Think about the people that come to your imagination, to your memory, When you think about who laid the groundwork of faith for you. There are opportunities for us to do the same for others. And we do it to honor, perhaps, those who have given their lives, their time, their energy, their faith for us. we have the option of becoming a curse or a blessing. Today in this story, we receive courage from the heroes of the faith. And so as we think about these heroes, as we think about our own, think also, reflect through the week ahead on what you can do to begin to lay the foundation for salvation in the lives of others. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, you have worked in ways that we do not comprehend. Through people we will never meet to bring us to this place of faith in our own lives. We seek to grow 
and we seek your guidance to those who can help us. And at the same time, we seek to be those people for others. Broaden our vision so that we might see those who we can help and offer salvation to them. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.